preach the word around here. Amen. That's good. That's good. I like that ending. I, I like how they just keep, I, don't, I think they just don't know many words. And <clears throat> But either way, it sounded pretty good. We certainly liking that. And uh, Matthew chapter 28 today, would you, Matthew chapter 28, as you're turning there, I was told by the singles I have to share something with you. Actually, it was an eight to eight. Well, we had about six or eight that didn't even that didn't even uh, vote because they just it was too close. But there was an eight to eight tie, and eight didn't vote or nine or something like that. So I, I couldn't get them to vote. So we, we I just assumed they wanted them. <coughs> now, okay, now this this is singles now. It's not my fault. Okay. What what, what do you call an ant? Who skipped school? A true aunt. <laughs> okay, Th- these are the top ones too, by the way. <laughs> what do you call a two a two hundred year old aunt? An antique. Come on, now they're getting better already, right? Okay, okay, try this one on. Oh, I like this one. This is probably one of my favorites. What do you call an ant? With frog legs. An amphibian. <laughs> amphibian. Right? Oh, come on now. You know that was good. How many ants are needed to fill an apartment? Ten ants. <laughs> Ten ants. You guys, nobody in here likes jokes? These are really... They're, they're getting, it's getting hot in here. These are hot... In, these are good ones. What do you call... This is a good one. What do you call an ant that likes to be alone? Independent. 
Independent. <laughs> what kind of ants are good at math? Account ants. Account ants. And finally, this one deviates. I know this one deviates, but it, it's, it's really good. Why do statues and paintings of George Washington always show him standing? Because he would never lie. Some of you still didn't get that. You talk to me later, I'll fill you in on that one. He would never lie. We had to explain that one to the singles. I was trying to do things like that. All right. So anyway, there you go. That's as good as they get today. And you can thank the singles. They wanted me to share those. Thank you, singles. Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 6. Let's go ahead and read this. You can remain seated right where you're at. The Bible says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. For fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. The angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. This particular passage, of course, is extremely familiar. And probably about every Easter, for sure, we pull it out and we begin to share it. And understandably so, and rightly so. What a powerful passage this is. Referring and speaking concerning the resurrected Christ. A survey by the Pew Research Center found that between 2007... And 2012, belief in the existence of God had dropped 15 points among Americans 30 and under. 15 points in five years. Uh, Pew, which has been, Pew, Pew Research, which has been studying the trend for 25 years, finds that just 68% of millennials in 2012 agree with the statement, quote, I never doubt the existence of God, unquote. And that's down from 76% in 2009 and 83% in 2007. So in 2007, 83% of those under 30 would have said, yes, indeed, we believe that statement. But just five years later, 15% less agree with that statement. Among other generations, belief in God is, is, is rather high. And, and, and it has seen some changes over the last few decades, but it still remains rather high. Between 81 and 89% of older generations say that they never doubt the existence of God, although the older generation is more, than, more likely to believe in God. Obviously, the older you are, the more apt you are to say, I believe in the existence of God. I believe that there is a God and don't doubt that. Now, given that a full 68% of the millennials claim to never doubt the existence of God, and as high as 90%, almost 90% of others do the same. It seems rather inconsistent to me that we are abandoning God in groves. What I mean by that is, the Gallup International indicates that close to 40% of Americans report they regularly attend religious services. Hold on. However, the numbers that actually do attend are less than half that claimed. Can you believe that? 
That means 20% of folks regularly attend services in the United States of America. And yet we have as high as 90% claiming that they believe in a God and never doubt His existence. That's amazing, isn't it? To me, there's a tremendous inconsistency. To me, there's a major disparity between those that claim to know and believe there's a God and never doubt His existence to those who allow it to affect their faith and practice. Of course, today is Easter. And we gather together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was dead, but He lives evermore. Now, if we believe that Jesus rose again, naturally it should, it should directly affect our faith. It should affect our practice. It should affect our outlook. And this morning, I want to address this disparity by considering this statement. If Jesus rose again. If Jesus rose again. And I want to share just a couple of things if Jesus rose again and then pull it all together in the end and make a couple of statements, okay? Let's take just a few minutes today, have a word of prayer, and then see what God has for us this morning. Father, we come to you. We want to thank you for this tremendous crowd that's gathered today with the express purpose of bringing glory and honor to you for their desire to thank you for the resurrected Christ to show, Father, just their, their love for you. And I ask, Lord, today that as we gather here today, that our hearts would be stirred and encouraged and that, Lord, that we would leave here different for having come. Holy Spirit of God, fill me now. May I be your mouthpiece. May you give me the literal words you'd have me to say. And, Lord, may you anoint every listening ear that they may hear with spiritual ears this morning. Father, we just beg you to show up in a mighty way. We believe you're here already. But, Lord, we want to give you the right to affect our heart and our life now. Give you permission to not only speak, but to allow your truths to affect our lives. Oh, God of heaven, help us to have a heart like that even now. To not just be hearers, but doers of the Word of God. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So if Jesus rose again, then there is a God. If Jesus rose again, then there is a God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If indeed there's a God, then evolution is a hoax. One day a zookeeper noticed that the orangutan was reading two books. He was reading the Bible and Darwin's The Origin of Species. In surprise, the zookeeper asked the ape, he said, well, Why are you reading both of these books? And the orangutan said, well, I just wanted to know if I was my brother's keeper or my keeper's brother. I went, Is that better than the last one? I, I, wanted, I wanted to know if I was my brother's keeper, as the Bible says, or my keeper's brother. Listen, if there is a God... If Jesus rose again, then there is a God. And if there's a God, then evolution is a hoax. May I say this also then? Education is a hazard. So say, Whoa, wait a second. You want to teach evolution as fact? That's a hazard if there's a God. 
That's a hazard. See, the public school system has embraced the misguided teachings of so-called scientists and in turn teach evolution not as a theory anymore, but as fact. As a matter of fact, Richard Dawkins, a highly acclaimed evolutionary biologist, he boldly declares, evolution is a fact beyond reasonable doubt, beyond serious doubt, beyond sane, informed, intelligent doubt, beyond doubt, evolution is a fact. This man is quoted in public school textbooks. Let me tell you something. If indeed, if indeed Jesus rose again, then there is a God. And if there is a God, He created the universe. If there is a God, He created you. And if there is a God, then evolution is a hoax today. If Jesus rose again, then the Bible is true. In John chapter 17, verse 17, the Bible says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What I hold in my hand today in this King James Bible is the Word of God. It is the truth. And if indeed Jesus Christ rose again as we, uh, I believe, claim that He did, then indeed there is a God. But then also, the Bible's true today. That means it is the source of all truth. That means it is the solution to all trouble. That means every problem that you can think of and every situation that comes to mind and every perplexing issue that addresses this culture and society in which we live. Let me tell you something today. This book right here addresses it, and this book has the solution and the answers. Why? Because it is the truth. It is God's Word. The Bible's true. If indeed Jesus rose again, then there's a God, and the Bible's true. But if Jesus rose again, not only are those two things true, but also being saved is a necessity. If there's a God, and if the Bible's true, then being saved or born again is a necessity. In John chapter 3, verse 17, we read, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The Lord Jesus Christ meets Nicodemus along the way. Nicodemus says, hey, I've got some questions for you. Jesus says, listen, marvel not that I send to thee, ye must be born again. You've got to be born again. You need to be saved. You need to be forgiven. Why is that? Because we are condemned as described in the Word of God then. Take your Bible, look over the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16. You know the passage. You might even be able to quote it today. John 3, 16, but we're going to read a couple of extra verses. We like to stop short with 16, but we don't continue to read through to 18. Let's continue to read through there today in John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. See, being saved is a necessity. Why? Because we are condemned as described then. In John chapter 3, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Did you catch that phrase? He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Oh, it's not a matter of will my good outweigh my bad. It's not a matter of in the end will it turn out okay in my behalf. No, it's a matter of you're already condemned. You've already been sentenced. You're already de determined dead without Jesus Christ and on your way to a devil's hell. 
There is no aspect of, well, if I just work hard enough or if I just live right or if I just get the scale to weigh in my favor. No, you're already condemned if your faith and trust is not in Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. It's not enough to believe in God. The devils believe in God and tremble, the Bible tells us in James chapter 2, verse 10. There must be a personal faith in Jesus Christ. The fact is today, is if indeed Jesus rose from the dead, then there is a God. And if there's a God, that Bible is true. And if the Bible's true, then being saved is a necessity. Because we are condemned as described. But may I say, not only are we condemned, but praise the Lord, we are converted as declared. In the book of John chapter 14, the Bible says, or Jesus made this statement to his disciples, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In John eleven twenty five, there is he goes to see uh, Lazarus, and Lazarus' his friend is dead, of course. And he meets Mary along the way. And he, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. We are converted as declared. The fact is, is Jesus Christ offers us an escape. Jesus Christ offers us salvation and forgiveness. He offers us a home in heaven. And He offers us eternal life. As He has said. If Jesus rose again, then there is a God. The Bible's true. Being saved is a necessity. Number four, living for Christ is worth it all. If Jesus rose again, then living for Christ is worth it all. Take your Bible, look if you would to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Notice what the Bible says. And you know, it does matter what the Bible says, by the way. It's a little more important than what a preacher says. It's a little more important than what a church believes. What the Bible says outweighs all of it. This book is truth. Remember, thy word is truth. That's assuming if Jesus rose again, of course. Now, we we, we notice here, living for Christ is worth it all. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It means He's not asking us to do that which is above and beyond. He's not asking us to do something that is off the charts. He's asking us to do something that is well within normal limitations. This is reasonable service. To present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. He goes on to say, And be not conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know what the big uh, breakdown is in Christianity? Is the renewing of the mind. See, what happens is, is that people say, I'm sick and tired of all these rules. I'm tired of all this, this, this Bible, thou shalt not, and thou shalt not this, and thou shalt not that. I'm sick of it. You know what? You know when you'll stop being sick of those? When you get your mind renewed. Amen. When you start thinking like the Lord a little bit. You know, you know, you know why we don't. Why, why God says he he hates adultery, but you know there's some people that enjoy adultery. Now, what's how's that possible? If God says it's so wrong, how can it be so right in some people's minds? Because their mind's not renewed. It's not Christ-like. They're not conformed to the image of God. 
Listen, as long as we walk in this flesh, as long as we are carnal in our thinking, then we're obviously going to embrace worldly thought and worldly ideology. We need the mind of Christ and we need to have a renewed mind. And in having a renewed mind, we'll think like Christ. All of a sudden, church becomes joyful and rejoicing times. It's a wonderful thing to fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ now. Now, all of a sudden, we're not all bent out of shape when the preacher says, Praise God, we have an opportunity to give both ourselves, of our time, our labor, our energy, and finances. Praise God, preacher, we love it. Why? Because we're renewed in our mind. But when we're not renewed in our mind, this is unreasonable service. Totally unreasonable to expect me, according to the Word of God, to present my body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God? You mean i got to live holy? That's unacceptable. No, it's a reasonable service. But it's no longer reasonable in our minds because they're not renewed yet. They don't think like Christ. But may I say today, if Christ rose again, then living for Christ is worth it all. It's worth it all. No sacrifice is too great. No suffering is too grievous. No service is too grand. Everything's good. It's all good, preacher. When or if Jesus rose again. So if Jesus rose again, then there is a God. May I contend also if Jesus rose again, the Bible's true. If Jesus rose again, being saved is a necessity. And if Jesus rose again, then living for Christ is worth it all. But one last thing. If Jesus rose again, then dying is truly gain. Dying is truly gain then. If Jesus rose again, that is. Philippians 1.21, the Apostle Paul makes the statement to the church at Philippi. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Wow. What, Paul? To die is gain? Are you telling me, Paul, that to die is good? It's gain. It's good. It's gain. I know whenever my bank account gains, it's good. I know when my mileage gains as I'm driving down the highway, it's good. All I'm saying is, is in this case, dying, he said, is good. It's gain. I'm going to be in better shape on the other side than I am on this side. But wait a second. That depends on whether or not Jesus Christ rose again. See, dying's gain. Why? Because death is a doorway. It's a doorway. In 2 Corinthians, turn there if you would please, if you have a Bible that is, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. It, death is a doorway. We read in 2 Corinthians, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 5, Therefore, we are always confident, the Apostle Paul once again speaking, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and here's a, this is amazing, isn't it? And willing, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He says, listen, I'm telling you, not only are we confident, but we are willing to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. I'm looking forward to taking that step through that door that leads to eternity and to everlasting life. I can't wait to be on my way and in heaven. 
Wow, that's, a, that's amazing, isn't it? Now listen, I, I'll say this. I understand some of these young people. I, I'd be, I mean, I remember being a young person, being somewhat apprehensive about the fact of, of death. You know, oh man, I, you know, I want to I grow up and drive a car. I, I want to get married. I want to have a family. I want to get a career. I, wanna, I understand all that. I do. Let me tell you something. I've also watched the saints of old grow older and older, lose family, friend, family members and friends and loved ones. I've watched their health decline. I've seen them suffer and sorrow. And I've heard the words of the Apostle Paul right out of their own mouth. Not only am I confident, but I'm willing, rather, to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. If Jesus rose again, then dying is truly gain because death is simply a doorway from this life to the next. Dying is a gain not only because death is a doorway, but because the light is our destiny. The light is our destiny. In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 4, the Bible says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That sounds good to me. And the older we get, it sounds better. If Jesus rose again, then today there's a God. The Bible's true. Being saved is a necessity. Living for Christ is worth it all, and dying is truly gain. <clears throat> Jesus hung on the cross in agony. For approximately six hours, he suffered before giving up the ghost to spirit. The earth quaked, the veil of the temple was rent, and the graves were opened. Upon his death, the Bible tells us in Mark 15, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And calling unto him the, the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. You say, what in the world is that talking about? Why was Pilate marveling at this, this statement? Why, why so, so? He came to him and said, hey, can I have Jesus' body? What are you talking about, Jesus' body? Are you kidding me? Well, why would he be like that? Why was he marveling at this? I'll tell you why. Because crucifixion was usually intended to provide a death that was particularly slow. It was very painful and gruesome and humiliating and very public, as we know. The term ex ex excruciating, that term excruciating, literally means out of crucifying. Isn't that amazing? That's when we say, boy, that's excruciating. We're referring back to the cross and crucifixion. Painful, yes, but slow as well. So slow was crucifixion that in many cases, Roman soldiers would go about breaking the legs of their victims just to speed the process up. And in this particular case, they did it once again, hoping to get them off before six in the evening that night because of the Jews. So they go by and they, they break the legs of the first malefactor. And then they go before Jesus Christ there and they say, hmm, he's not alive, is he? Well, let's just make sure. Don't break his legs. Took a spear. Shoved it through his side. Water and blood mixed came forth. 
the Savior was dead, but he never had his legs broken. The next one they go to, they break his legs. Why? Because they were both still alive. Pilate says, are you kidding me? Jesus is dead already? I can't believe that. Before I give him the okay to take the body down, is he really dead, sir? Yes, he is, Pilate. That was quick for crucifixion. Pilate gives permission to Joseph to take the body. In Mark 15, 46, And he brought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone under the door of the sepulcher. Joseph rolled that stone there. Him and his friends and cohorts, they rolled the stone in front. We often think the Romans did it, but no, they didn't. We're going to find that the Romans sealed it and made it sure. So the Jewish authorities, however, became concerned. They were concerned because Jesus' followers had claimed that he would rise again three days later. They thought, man, we've got to do something about that. What if they come and steal the body away and all of a sudden it appears that he rose again? We'd have a mess on our hands. We can end it right here. We can end it right now. Let's go ahead and put a, a watch on these, this tomb. So Matthew 27, the Bible says, Now the next day, that following the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, While he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure unto the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. A watch consisted of anywhere from four to sixteen soldiers. There would never be a time when the tomb would be unguarded. There would always be eyes on the tomb. While others slept, others watched. If the watch were to fail in their mission, if some reason, somehow, some way, they would have stolen the body, then these men would have to take their lives. They, their lives were at stake. They weren't permitted to fail. But even, even if they had all fallen asleep, as was ultimately concocted, don't you think it would be rather impossible to believe that these trained soldiers would not have been awakened at the sound of probably eight to ten men trying to remove a sealed stone likely weighing one and a half to two tons? And that's how big the stone would have been. I mean, in, in, in those days, the stone was rolled into a, cre- a crevice so that even then it wasn't as easy to roll out as it was to roll in. And and Joseph and his buddies, I'm sure, took great pains to roll the stone over and drop it into that crevice. And now we have the soldiers guarding it. If they all fell asleep, and even eight or ten men would have tried to be, shh, let's roll the stone away. Uh, Uh Uh-uh. Didn't work like that. They would have woke up. These were trained soldiers. The morning dawns. Mary Magdalene, the other women with spices, make their way to the sepulcher in order to further embalm the Lord's body. They wonder among themselves, who would remove the stone for us, giving us access to His body? 
However, upon arriving, they found the stone already taken away from the tomb. In Luke chapter 24, the Bible says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came into the sepulchre bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. They found the stone rolled away from the sepulchre and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. So into the tomb they went. Mary! Mary! Ladies! What did you find in there? What do you see in there? Mary! What? An echoing voice says, Nothing. What? Did I hear you right? What's in there? Nothing. He's gone. He's not here. The ladies, they returned to tell the disciples what had taken place, what had transpired, what they had not seen. And the Bible tells us in John chapter 20, verse 3, Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, meaning John, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple, John, did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he stooped down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. He stood at the mouth of that sepulcher. Oh, there where the stone was rolled. And he looked in. John! John, what do you see? John! John, what's in there? Nothing. Nothing. Just a few linen garments, but nothing. No, John, seriously, what's in there? Nothing. It's empty. The tomb is empty. John chapter 20, verse 6 says, Then cometh Simon Peter following him, went into the sepulcher. He didn't stop at the mouth of it. He didn't stop where the stone was. He, he went right on into the sepulcher. And he seeth those linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the other clothes, linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. And he goes on into the tomb. And all of a sudden, the question rises, Peter, Peter, what do you see? What's in there? Peter! Nothing. Nothing. He's not here. He's gone. Gentlemen, what makes you believe that Jesus Christ is Messiah? Peter, John, what makes you believe that He rose from the dead? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing? There has to be something. No. No, it's nothing. That day that I went to the tomb, that morning of the third day and night, when I arrived there at the tomb, I looked in, I went in, and I found nothing. He is risen. From the dead. He's alive forevermore. Matthew 28, 6, our text said, He's not here, for He is risen as He said. Come see the place 
where the Lord lay. Come see nothing. Come see nothing. It's not a matter of did Jesus rise again or if Jesus rose again. I mean, if Jesus rose again, did Jesus rise? Absolutely. Without a doubt, He is risen, as He said. So therefore, it's not a matter if Jesus rose again. Because Jesus rose again, may I say today, there is a God in heaven. So if about it, there is a God in heaven. And may I say there is a Bible, and that Bible is true. And may I just say, because that Bible's true and there's a God, then being saved is a necessity. And if you have yet to receive Christ, you have yet to accept Him as your Lord, your Savior. If you have failed at this point to admit that you are a sinner, that you are a sinner at the very root, the very being, at the very heart of your nature. If you have yet to say, God, you're right. I failed you. I don't measure up. I'll never be able to be good enough. But God, I need your mercy. God, I need your grace. God, I need your Son. If you've never done that, you need to. Because it is a necessity. Because Jesus is risen from the dead. And if Jesus was just only if, you could take your chances. But He did raise. And because He did raise from the dead, being saved is a necessity, but living for Christ is worth it all. There's no, no sacrifice too great. Oh God, help us as believers to understand that it's our privilege to serve Him. It's a delight, not just a duty. It's not an oppression, but an opportunity. And finally, because He is risen, dying is truly gain. That's why I can do the funerals I do in most cases. Because we're celebrating a life and a home going. Death is not the end. It's a new beginning. Well, I know we were saved everlasting and given everlasting life already. But we realize it, experience it, practically embrace it. The moment we close our eyes in death and awake in His presence. The risen Saviors. I wonder this morning, have you settled your salvation? 25 different people recognized over the last three weeks that they needed a Jesus that rose again to forgive and to save them from their sin. That there was no other hope or solution other than Him. If you've yet to receive and accept Christ, will you join them? Will you join me? And also, assure yourself a spot in glory. A heavenly home. A perfect Savior. And a perfect salvation. And if you're a child of God today, Will you be willing, according to Romans, to present yourself a living sacrifice? Because He rose again, living for Him is worth it all. And say, Lord, 
I don't know what it means to surrender my all to you. Whatever I've got, it's all yours. 